Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching through the book of Philemon, and the sermon title is Forgiveness and Christian Brotherhood. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Father in heaven, you are glorious. May your name be honored as holy in our midst today. Your word is exalted above the heavens, and it is a serious thing that we come here to hear from it. I ask that it would be clear and that you would hide me behind the cross and that Christ would be made known known today. Help this passage to be clear to us. If there's any misunderstandings, um, may they come to the light. And most importantly, may we understand the intent of this passage and be confronted with our need to forgive. And I pray you would do this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, the main point of this letter of Philemon is going to be the main point of my sermon, and that is going to be forgiveness and Christian brotherhood. Forgiveness and Christian brotherhood. Um, During our introduction here, I'm going to give you guys an outline of the whole book, because again, it's, it's only one chapter and 25 verses. So um, first of all, we're going to look at Paul's greeting in verses 1 to 3. And then in verses 4 to 7, we see Philemon's character. In verses 8 to 21, which is where we're going to spend the most of our time, that is Paul's appeal to Philemon for forgiveness. And then lastly, we'll wrap things up with Paul's farewell in the last few verses of the chapter. So that's the outline. That's where we're going. As I mentioned before, the main purpose of this letter is to appeal to Philemon to forgive his runaway slave named Onesimus, who had run away but then became a believer under Paul. And now Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, and we'll get into the details of that. But the main purpose is forgiveness and Christian brotherhood. Those are the main themes. But there are some sub-themes that we're going to address as well in passing. Um, Things like slavery, providence, and I hope those will be clear. Um, I ended up up writing about 10 paragraphs on the issue of slavery, and then I realized that it was going to overtake the whole message. So I I deleted almost all of it and just... Concise, uh, just had to make it way more concise. Uh, I was sitting right next to Michaela when I was doing that, and I was like, babe, I have to delete this. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, but it's okay. If uh, there's more information you guys want on any of the sub points, then feel free to ask me afterwards. So without further ado, let's get into the passage, and we'll, we'll see how, uh, how the context builds here. So um, in verse, verses 1 to 3, so Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this sounds very familiar uh, to us. It's very typical of Paul to open up a letter like this, but there are some things we'll want to know before we go further, because it'll help, under, help us understand the context of this. So, um, so first of all, this letter was written from prison. So when Paul says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he means that literally. He's a prisoner at this point. 
And he wrote this letter along with three other letters that are very well known, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. He wrote those all at the same time. Um, so this is, that's the context. He's writing this from prison. And then further on, we see a bunch of people introduced. Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and then this church that meets in their home. So let's, let's figure out who these people are just to get a small biography on everyone, and then we'll get into the main meat of the passage here. So, so Philemon, this is obviously the namesake of the letter. Um, he was a wealthy man that lived in the city of Colossae. And he owned at least one slave, probably more. It was very common in that day for wealthy people to have slaves. He owned a large home. And this is actually, so it says there's a church that met in his house. It's the Colossian church that met in his house. So the same letter, Colossians, that Paul wrote from prison, it's the same church. So the letter of Colossians and the letter of Philemon would have been sent together at the same time and both read out loud at the same time. So even though this is specifically addressed to Philemon, because it's addressed to the church and to Aphia and Archippus, it was supposed to be read publicly. And that's going to be really important later, as we see, for the application. Um, it's hard to know exactly who Aphia and Archippus were, but they were likely his, uh, his wife and son. Um, but there's just not a lot about them that's mentioned. But they are mentioned one other time, and that's at the end of Colossians, which makes sense since it's the same church. And one other thing to note is the fact that the church met in this man's house. Um, so not only does that tell us a lot about Philemon, that he was wealthy and probably had a large home, um, but it does call to memory the fact that the early church very often met in homes. That was just the way it was because, um, well, I should... I should say a further clarifying comment, early on when the church first started in the first 40 years or so, uh, Christians often met in the homes, but also in synagogues and in the temple if they were in Jerusalem as well. Um, but then, of course, after uh, the destruction of, of Jerusalem in AD 70, that changed a lot of things. Um, there was great persecution of Jews as well as Christians during that time. So, um, but, but it is important to know the early church did meet in homes. That's not a commandment to meet in homes. It's, you can actually meet wherever you want to because the church is the people. Um, and it wasn't until 313, 313 AD, when uh, Christianity was legalized that they were able to start building these beautiful church buildings, of, of course, of which I'm very thankful because we're sitting in one right now. <laughs> and it'd be very hard for all of us to gather in one little home. So this is, this is uh, much better in that respect, at least. Um, but that's just the context. I wanted to make sure we pointed that out. And then briefly, I want to look at Philemon's character. So in verses 4 to 7. Um, so it says here that, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Philemon was known for his love for believers. He's known for his love for believers. And then we see that he had a strong faith in Jesus. For your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love. So he was an encouragement to believers as well. 
to Paul and to believers. So it's important for us to understand Philemon's character because, as you probably caught when I was reading the passage and from the introduction, um, Philemon owned slaves. He was a master of slaves. And that can put a really bad taste in our mouths in our context, so we're going to address that. But it is important for us to know his character. This is the kind of man he was. He was a loving man, a faithful man who loved Christ and, and, and was a loving man. So that's important for us to keep in the back of our mind um, when we're discussing Philemon. So let's get into the bulk of this. This is where the main meat of the passage is going to be. It's going to be verses 8 to 21. We're going to spend most of our time here. So let's look at verses 8 and 9 here. For, the reason, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. So Paul, as I mentioned, is, is about to appeal to accept Onesimus back. And instead of commanding that this be done, Paul wants to appeal to his conscience, appeal to his heart to make the right decision. And some of us may be like, like what's, what's really the difference? Well, the difference is an internal desire versus an external um, command. So it's far, and I think, I think we all know this probably with, with children and, and if you've ever um, had to tell someone what to do, it's way better that they desire to do the thing themselves than for you to tell them what to do, and they do it, but they don't really want to do it. Now, ultimately, at the end of the day, obedience is what matters, and it's far better that someone obey and not really want to than to not obey at all. But his point here is he wants, he wants Philemon to make this decision himself out of his own free will, as it said um, in the passage. He wants, he wants him to do that himself. So that's why he's appealing. And we should keep this principle in mind when we're speaking to our brothers and sisters, to someone who is in the wrong or someone who's going astray or whatever. We, we want, of course, the, the goal is that they be restored to Christ and, and walk in obedience. But there's certain situations that are best handled by a, a gentle appeal. And if that doesn't work, then you know, that's where you, you, know, you need to be really bold and serious and, and give that stern command. Both are important, but I think the principle is if, if you just come in gun, guns blazing, you're probably going to burn bridges. And we need to be known for our gentleness and kindness, but at the same time, our boldness. So we need to be wise in knowing what, the, what needs to happen in each given situation, and, and that's where prayer comes in. But we certainly see Paul do both. In Galatians, he comes in guns a-blazing. Guns a-blazing. Um, but here in Philemon, it's a little different, and I think that's because he knows Philemon's character. He knows his love for Christ, and I think he's, as we see at the end, he's banking on it. He, he, I have to bring it up now, because um, it's really funny that he's appealing to him, yet he says this. Um, Verse 21, since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So look at that assumption that Paul has. It's like, I know you're going to do this. Like, I know you're going to obey, right? So it's just interesting. He's like, I don't know. I, don't know. It's, I, I thought it was very interesting. It's like he's really walking that fine line between appeal and, and a command, but he's doing so very tactfully. <clears throat> and uh, this, this would have been really important because, as I mentioned at the beginning, this letter would have been read to the whole church. So Paul's making this appeal, and the whole church is hearing this appeal. 
So this whole church is going to be keeping him accountable. They'll know if he was obeying Paul or not. They'll know by the way he treated Onesimus and if he accepted him back truly. So there's some good accountability. Um, in verse 10, we see Onesimus first introduced here. So it's um, I, Paul, or I guess middle of verse 9, I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. So Onesimus was a runaway slave. He likely stole from Philemon. He, he wronged him in some way. We know from Onesimus's character before he became a Christian, he was a lazy worker. He was lazy. In fact, Onesimus's name means useful. Okay? But then in verse 11, it says, once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. It's kind of a play on words that Paul is making here, as is typical of him. Very witty. And so he says, this man whose name means useful, he was useless, but now he's living up to his name. Now he's useful. And that's because what was the factor that changed? Christ. Christ changed him. So he ran away from his master, went to Rome, which was very common in that day for slaves to run to Rome um, because it was the capital city and there were lots of other ex-slaves there that ran away. And in the bigger city, there was more opportunity for them to survive um, than if they were just out in the wild somewhere or in a small town. But wouldn't you know it, he ran into Paul. And that was no accident, as we'll see later. But he ran into Paul. And God used that to actually bring him to Christ. And, this, and then during his time being discipled by Paul, he was radically changed. He was radically changed. Completely different man. Um, in verse 15, let me read that. For perhaps this is why... He was separated from you for a brief time. Um, sorry, guys, one second. There we go. But perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently. So Paul knew this whole time that he was supposed, he, he wanted him to go back. The right thing was for him to go back and be reconciled. And that, that would have never happened had God not changed Onesimus' heart. Can you imagine how awkward that would be? How awkward that would be to go back after you just wronged your, your former master and you left him? That'd, that'd be really awkward. But obviously God had, had changed his heart. But this does bring up something interesting that we need to address, um, as I mentioned before, the issue of, of slavery. Because here in this passage we see that Philemon owned Onesimus and we see this language being used of master and slave, and that's not uncommon to the New Testament. And it's important for us to know what the Bible actually says about this issue, um, because this is something that's very complicated, especially to Americans, because of our history with slavery. Something that is far, it's far more complicated in our country than it was in other contexts, so we'll, we'll get into that very briefly. Like I mentioned, I, I did write 10 paragraphs on this and had to delete almost all of it just because it was way too much. Um, but if there's any other, you know, clarifying things I can help you guys with, feel free to um, talk to me after the, after the sermon. But the Bible does have a lot to slay, say on the, uh, on the subject. And uh, I think where we should start off is clarifying what slavery is. And then we'll look at some, some passages here. So 
Slavery is the ownership of another person for the purpose of service of some kind. It's important to note that it has existed in pretty much every single civilization throughout human history. Almost every civilization. And in many cases, it was terribly abusive. In most cases, it was terribly abusive. And people were treated as less than human. That was certainly the case in the first century and certainly the case with almost all slavery across the world. Um, but there were some cases, um, particularly in the land of Israel, where, where many times masters had a very good relationship with their slaves. And there was a, a mutual love that they had for one another, which can be hard for us to, to picture. But we know from the Bible and from history um, and from letters between masters and slaves that that was the case. Even in America, surprisingly, which we'll, we'll touch on that in a second. But overall, slavery was a horrible institution. And I think we want to be very clear on the outset as we're addressing this. We want to go to the beginning in Genesis and clarify why slavery is wrong, why it's not good, why it does violate God's will for humanity, but how God eventually had a plan to get rid of it. And it's not in the way we, we would normally think. So if you look at Genesis at the very beginning, it says that God made man in his image after his likeness to take dominion over the whole world, to subdue it, to make it flourish, to be fruitful and multiply. So humanity was given authority over the world, but not one another. We're not supposed to take dominion of each other. We're supposed to take dominion of creation and make it flourish. So it goes against the image of God, the Imago Dei. It, it violates that. Very clearly, slavery is not a good thing. However, it's a reality that we have to deal with and it's probably one of the biggest blights and scars in human history that we have to look back on when we look at humanity. It's a very messy, evil thing. But when we look at the law of Moses, we, we see a little bit of light shining through. So in the days of Moses, slavery was uh, absolutely rampant. It was common in nearly every culture, as I mentioned before. And slaves were abused. Um, very rarely would one be able to go free. And when God gave his law to Israel, and you can find this in Exodus 21 if you want to get a, a fuller scope of um, the first laws given to God's people about this issue, um, slaves were treated with dignity and given laws that actually protected them. So there were laws that if someone takes a Hebrew slave, this is from Exodus 21, if someone has a Hebrew slave, they're to serve for six years, and on the seventh year, be set free. That is unheard of. That was unheard of in that day, okay? There were all sorts of laws protecting women especially, because women sexual slavery was, was rampant in this day. And the laws that God made to protect women were um, so needed. And in fact, we don't, we don't notice this as much when we read our Bibles, but if you read carefully and then you look at history, there was actually many people from the surrounding nations that flocked to Israel and became Jews because of the goodness of God's law and the fairness of God's law. Obviously, Israel wasn't perfect, but when they had seasons of obeying God's law, they were the best nation on earth, morally speaking. If you were going to be part of a nation, you wanted to be part of Israel because of its fair and just laws that God made. So that, that was a very common thing, and I think that's just a testimony to how, from our perspective, Israel was kind of backwards, if you will. Um, but 
at that time, they were, they were a light in the midst of dark nations. But God, the point here is that God didn't forbid slavery, but gave regulations to it. In a very similar way, he did the same thing with marriage, if you remember. He, or divorce, I should say. He didn't forbid divorce, but he gave some regulations on it that he eventually narrowed down in the New Testament. But then when we turn to the New Testament, we see some further clarification on the issue of slavery. And again, we don't see the command to abolish it, which is interesting. We'll get to that. But we don't see the command to abolish it. Instead, we see God commanding that masters love their slaves and that slaves honor their masters. You will never see a command for a a master to release their slave other than in Philemon, right here, in this one instance. But other than that, they're not commanded to. So we, and Christians have been confused about this over time, and there's been, been debate on how this is supposed to play out, because in our own history in America, slaves were, um, slaves were very... Uh, the issue of slavery was, was very different because it was often race-based and based off of um, kidnapping and not people who were just poor and sold themselves into slavery. Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament is very clear that man-stealers, kidnapping, is absolutely forbidden and is worthy of death. So God's law, very clear on that. But slavery itself wasn't necessarily forbidden, but God told them how it was supposed to be done, and it was supposed to be done in a loving way that reflected Christ. Ultimately, though, um, I do believe, and I think when we look at history, God's plan was to destroy slavery, and eventually, of course, he did, and even though there's still some slavery in other countries, um, for the most part, it's eradicated because of Christians, because of Christ and the gospel, but he didn't want to do it immediately. Because if you think about it, if, if the command came that all Christians who, were, who had slaves had to release them, most slaves were poor. They didn't have many skills. They didn't have any assets. So they probably would have gone out into the world and had to sell themselves back into slavery to a non-Christian master because they didn't have any means to take care of themselves. So they would have ended up back in slavery, but it would have been way worse for them had that happened. So in God's wisdom, during that period of time, he said, no, you're going to love one another and be committed to one another in a, in a master-servant relationship that honors Christ, and that will change the world, and eventually it will over, overthrow the institution of slavery altogether, which, of course, it is Christians that are the, the ones who fought for the end of the slave trade, and it was Christians who fought for the end of slavery in the West. And that has had ripple effects into many nations in the world. And it's because of the gospel, it's because of Christians. It's because Christians have taught that all people are made in the image of God. And there have been Christians who have, uh, whether professing Christians or very confused Christians that have got this terribly wrong, especially in our history. But as a whole, the right side won out. And that's, that's what we can expect God to do throughout history. He's establishing justice in the earth through his church. And it's not going to be perfect till Christ comes back, but there is growth there. So, let's continue on. Um, I said a little bit more about that than I had intended to, but that's okay. Um, Let's go back to verse 15. I mentioned it earlier here. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. 
So notice the word here is very important, easy to miss. It says, perhaps this is why. Why? There's some intent here. But who is the one with the intention? It's God. Paul is talking about God's providence through this. He's saying, perhaps this is why God did it this way. God is the one that orchestrated Onesimus being a lazy servant and leaving his master and coming to find Paul. It's not a coincidence. Rome's a big city. And he found him in prison, supposedly, or maybe right before he went to prison. And he became a Christian then. And God used that to change Onesimus completely. And now there's reconciliation that's going to happen between Onesimus and Philemon. And that was all in God's providence. And that should remind us of so many things in the Bible. But one verse that I think is uh, just so good that we all should keep in mind all the time when bad things happen. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is Joseph talking to his brothers who, at the end of his life, you know, after he's um, become king of Egypt and his brothers sold him into slavery and now they're realizing that was a bad idea. Genesis 50, 20 says... You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. So notice it doesn't say God used it for good. Doesn't, it's not like God saw this happen and he was like, oh, I better react to this and make something good come out of it. God had his own plans through those evil things happening. He had his own plans through it. Now, he wasn't directly causing, like a puppet master, causing them to commit evil. But in a mysterious and providential way, he, he had planned for this to happen. And he's directing not just these events, but the entire course of history. We need not look further than the cross, which was the greatest sin that humanity ever committed, was murdering their Savior. And yet at the same time, it was planned before the foundations of the world. So we see God's awesome, almighty providence here over all things including these small things here. And application for us is when bad things happen, which they do, when someone wrongs you, when someone, um, when you lose your job, health concerns, whatever it is, just know that God has his own intentions through those things happening. Nothing is wasted. Zero. God does not waste anything. Our pain is not wasted. He uses it all for his glory to conform us to Christ for our ultimate good. And I've heard, um, I've heard this illustration before. I might have shared it, um, and especially at youth groups. So teens, forgive me for sharing this for the hundredth time. But um, I, I think um, we can understand God's providence in the world as tapestry, where you're looking at the back of the tapestry, where there's just a bunch of needles and threads going through. And from the back, it looks like a mess of just colors and chaos, and we have no idea what it's about. But when it's turned around, it's a beautiful picture. And I think that's our perspective versus God's perspective. And one day, partially at some points now, but ultimately when he returns, that tapestry is going to be turned over, and we're going to see what he was doing in human history all along and how all those pieces came together to honor Christ and to bring goodness to his creation and to us. But uh, interestingly enough, that is actually not, all, everything we've covered so far isn't actually the heart of this letter. 
Um, this all building up to this, this main point here in verses 15 to 16. And that is going to be, um, actually, I'm sorry, 15 to 21 is the, the main point. So we're going to look at Christian brotherhood in verses 15 to 16, and then um, 18 to 21, we'll look at forgiveness, and then we'll wrap things up after that. So 15 to 16 says, for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So this is a powerful, a powerful statement of our equal standing in Christ. So here's this master who in like social terms is better in every way than Onesimus in social terms. But here Paul is saying, you're going to accept him back, but not as a slave, which that, you know, it kind of reminds me of the uh, parable of the prodigal son where the, the prodigal son comes back and he's like, well, I'll at least be a servant because at least my, my father takes care of his servants well. But what does the father do? He embraces him as a son, right? And that's grace. And that's what Paul is calling for Philemon to do. He's calling him to not just accept him back as a slave, but as a brother, a brother, an equal in Christ. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Onesimus would no longer work for Philemon, but what it did ensure was equal treatment as brothers in Christ and mutual respect for one another. And that is, that is so massive, and that, that one little line has, um, throughout, throughout Christian history where there was slavery, um, in many master-slave relationships, this, this section that I just read to you was the game-changer. Accept them as brothers. Accept them as brothers. And that, that, is, that is massive. And it should remind us of a couple verses. Um, Galatians three twenty seven to 29 says this, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So that means Christ is what is being seen. You're clothed with him. That's what people see now. That's what God sees. There is no Jew or Greek slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what he's not saying here is that those distinctions aren't real and that they don't matter. What he is saying is they have no bearing on your status with Christ and in his church. They don't have a bearing on that. Your social status, your gender, where you're from, doesn't have bearing on your status in Christ. We are all equal in Christ. The gospel is the great leveler of the playing field. We're all declared as sinful because of Adam and because of our own sin, and then Christ comes, and anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Anyone. Anyone, regardless of where you're from. And then we can think, um, we think of the application here for us is, and I want to bring this to a local church level, we should see one another, not, not just as equals, but, 
Paul says to consider one another as more significant than yourselves. And that's really easy to do with people you like, but it's not easy to do with people who annoy you. And in a church this size, I would imagine that there's probably some relationships between you guys that are a little tight and there's some tension and that there's some annoyance or whatever it is. And as we'll see in a second when we discuss forgiveness, the basis of that forgiveness uh, is Christ and in our brotherhood and our sisterhood together. So that means you, everyone in this church should view each other as more significant than themselves. Everyone. We're one in Christ. We're united. There should be no divisions in the Lord's body. He absolutely hates division. There's right division. There's right division. But most of the time, division is wrong division. Most of the time. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of the gospel, is reconciliation. Not judgment. Reconciliation. That's the goal. That's the goal. Thing to keep in mind, verse uh, Romans 3, 22 to 23, says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you're not better than anyone else. None of us are better than each other. We're all sinful. We're, we've all broken God's law. And in God's sight, without Christ, we are destined for judgment, all of us. But through Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ. And when God sees Christians, he does not see us. He sees Christ. We're clothed with Christ. He doesn't see our imperfections and our, and our sins, which is amazing. We sang about many of those gospel truths today. We're covered by the blood of Christ. But that needs to be the basis of our unity, is the gospel. It can't just be unity for the sake of unity, because that falls apart. That's what the world is trying to have right now with this pluralistic society. They're, they want unity for the sake of unity, and that doesn't work. The, that's a foundation of sand. The foundation on the rock is Christ, the rock. And that's, that's where we, our unity is built, is on Christ. So let's turn to um, the other major section of this, verses 18 to 21 says, and if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So, here Paul appeals to Philemon to accept Onesimus back as if he were Paul himself. So that same respect that Philemon has for Paul, and Philemon was led to Christ by Paul in Ephesus. We don't have all the details of that account, but we know that for sure. Philemon was led to Christ by Paul, and he's saying, you owe me everything. You owe me your own, very, your, your own life, because... Like, I'm, of course, he's giving credit to God ultimately, but he's making an, an argument that you owe me your very soul because I'm the reason, God used me, I'm the reason that you came to Christ to begin with and that you have eternal life, right? As the, um, the one who gave him the gospel. 
But that's not the basis of his appeal. He kind of adds that as like a, a little footnote, like, hey, just in case you're thinking about not doing this, by the way, you owe me everything, so you really should do this. But <laughs> that's why he put it at the end, I think. But uh, nonetheless, he, he is, he is a, even though the word forgiveness is not used here, this is what he's asking him to do. And just put yourself in Philemon's shoes for a second. It's really easy for us to just gloss over this and be like, yeah, he should forgive him. Of course, that's what Christians do. But imagine having an employee or someone that you gave like everything to and you're the reason why they are surviving and then they just up and leave, take your stuff, and then some old man in prison <laughs> tells you to take him back. Like, if, if it weren't for Christ in the gospel, that would be really offensive and that would be really hard to do. But Paul is confident that he's going to do this because of Philemon's belief in the gospel and because forgiveness for Christians is rooted in our forgiveness through Christ. It's rooted in the gospel. It's not forgiveness for the sake of forgiveness. It's not just, just let it go. No, it's not just let it go. It's laid at the feet of Jesus. Lay it at the feet of the God who is judge of all. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay and, and he's the one, and, and really, as I said before, we need to remember, before we get on our high horse, that we're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. And this, we, we cannot refuse to forgive because of wrongs that others have done to us when we're completely blind to the wrongs we've done to God and other people. So I have a couple passages to read here. One of them is very heavy, and I don't want to explain it away. So first off, Matthew 6.15, Matthew 6.15 should be on the screen, I think. Matthew 6.15 says, But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. If you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive your offenses. That's coming from Jesus. From Jesus. And then we have this parable in Matthew 18, towards the end, starting in verse 21. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant, which should be familiar to you guys. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owned 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell down before him and said, be patient with me and I will repay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii which was just a day's wage at the time. That was a denarii, it was one day's wage, so 100, uh, 100 days' wages, which was far less than, uh, than what he owed the, the master. Um, then the master of that servant, oh, sorry, verse 28, um, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe me. At this, his fellow servant fell down and 
began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported it to their master, everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all the debts because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was hungry, or angry, not hungry, <laughs> his, uh, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. This is not optional. There's no qualifications. If you are forgiven in Christ, then you are to forgive others. And this is really hard, especially if you've been hurt by someone who's close to you, maybe someone even in this room. This is what our Lord says. And if you're going to name the name of Christ and be a Christian, this is your calling. Now, thankfully, you don't do this in your own strength because you can't. You can't. You have to go to Christ and believe the gospel. That's what this is rooted in. Remember that first section? He was forgiven of his entire debt. That's the gospel. We owe God an immeasurable amount of debt for our sin. That we're, and we're owed. That's, that's our wage. That's what we earned. We're owed that to pay it for eternity because our sin was against an infinite, infinite God. And therefore, the penalty for our sin is infinite. But Christ came, the God-man, and paid that penalty through his death on the cross. The only one who could do it, because he's God. He can pay an infinite debt, because he is infinite. He paid it, completely. And that's what verse 25, um, or verse uh, 27 says, when he forgave him his loan. That's, that happened to you if you're in Christ. So you have zero, zero right to withhold forgiveness from someone else. Now that doesn't mean you're going to battle, that doesn't mean you're not going to battle with the emotions that go through that. Okay? It's, it's, it's warfare. The Christian life is warfare. Battling to forgive others is warfare. But it's a decision before it's an emotion. It's a decision before it's an emotion. And we, we need to believe the gospel and start there. Remember what Christ has done for us. Let that humble you. And then, just practically speaking, the, the, best, way, the, the best way to start having a heart of forgiveness for someone is to pray for them. Pray for their well-being. Don't pray judgment on them. Pray for their well-being and that their relationship with God, with God would be restored or be strengthened. And, and ask God to do the work in your own heart. And this isn't, especially if it's a serious thing, this is not something that's one and done. This is going to be an ongoing life of repentance and asking for, asking for your own forgiveness for not forgiving someone else. And it's a continuous thing, continuous thing. But let me just read a few more passages of Scripture in closing, and then we'll, we'll talk about Paul's farewell very briefly. And we'll be done. Ephesians 1, 7 to 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. So we have forgiveness of our trespasses through his blood. And then Colossians 3, 
12 to 13 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. So whoever it is in your life right now that has badly hurt you, this, this is God's message to you from his word that it is time to lay it at the feet of Christ and forgive. Now is the time. Marriages, if there's tension in a marriage, now is the time to forgive. If there's tension between another brother or sister, it's time to forgive. Whatever it is, whatever that, that person that God just laid on your heart just now, that's the person. That's the person. You need to reconcile that. And before we go to the Lord's table today, you need to get that right with God. You can't, don't go to the Lord's table with division in your heart. The meal is supposed to symbolize our unity as one body in Christ, and Christ's body is not divided. So we, we cannot go to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, because God's judgment will be on you if you do, and that's not a light thing. So with that being said, um, I do think it would be good for us to view just one last thing in Paul's farewell here in, in closing. So um, in verse 22 to 25, he says this, Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So one of those names hopefully stood out to you. That's Mark. Mark. Now, if you know the book of Acts, in chapter 15, you know that Mark and Paul had some serious tension between them. Um, verses 37 and 39 of Acts 15 say this, Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was also called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to work, to the work. So Mark very similarly deserted Paul when he wasn't supposed to. And they had such, as it goes on to say, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Okay? But then by the time Paul comes to the end of his ministry, he says this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Same guy. So, at the beginning of his ministry, this guy deserted him. There's huge tensions between them. But somewhere in the middle, God reconciled them. They were reconciled to one another. So much so that now this man who was once useless to Paul is now useful to him for ministry. A brother. So Paul firsthand knew what it was like to forgive someone who had wronged you in the very same way that Onesimus wronged Philemon. So in conclusion, I know there was a lot there, but I think the main point that the Lord wants us to get is this. Forgive one another, even as God has forgiven you in Christ. That's the call. If you missed everything from this message, just get that last piece. Because you're forgiven in Christ if you're a Christian, forgive one another. Let me pray.
oh God, this is uh, a weighty thing, and your command for us to forgive is not easy. Sin hurts. It's painful. When we're wronged, it hurts. And those are real. We shouldn't pretend those emotions aren't real. It's a real thing, but your gospel, your son, is far greater and far more real. The gospel is eternal, and our emotions are are fleeting. They're temporary. God, I ask that in this congregation right now, that there would be reconciliation between one another because of our reconciliation to you through Christ. That the gospel would be the means by which we forgive one another and have Christian brotherhood and unity. So please use these words. May they, may they stay with us throughout the week. Do this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.